I'm so thrilled that you are finally here. Tracy, you're here on summer vacation. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Leaving sunny California for Denmark. And uh, and finally, we are here face to face after several years of riding back and forth with each other. And actually also in the meantime, getting you affiliated with the University of Southern Denmark, my university. So I'm really thrilled about that and, yes. and thrilled to have you here face to face and uh, And what we've decided to do today is to make a pop-up version of my podcast, Vaccine Curious, in collaboration with your podcast, which is called... Sensible Medicine, that's right. And invite people uh, around the table here where we will have our first face-to-face conversation about what has happened during these last two years and much more, I guess. As much as we can do within the hour that we have set aside for this first talk. And this is going to be an ongoing discussion. This will be the first of, I hope, many podcasts um, because, as I think listeners will hear, we we have a lot to talk about. We've already been talking basically for two days straight, first in Danish, <laughs> then in English, um, and we have no shortage of topics to discuss. And I'm glad that you brought up the that we are now both you you're you're a full professor of global health at University of Southern Denmark and I'm now affiliated and adjunct uh, associate professor there and so one of the things I I think we hope to achieve with these discussions is talks about collaboration between the United States and Denmark in terms of research and, and in particular research um, around uh, in, into vaccines vaccine safety vaccine efficacy how we can have better data moving forward. Um, and so it, I think it's a, it, this will be a very exciting um, opportunity and collaboration. And we should probably let the listeners know we're, we're first going to start by talking a bit about the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, that's really how Christine and I got to know each other. And we'll talk about the COVID-19 vaccines. And then we're going to segue into talking about um, vaccines in general. Um, and how to do uh, how to do research into vaccine safety and look for rare safety signals and kind of discuss a lot of the things that have come up recently in the media, also with RFK Jr. And um, I guess we, we should discuss that neither of us have shied away from, from controversy. And so we'll probably get into some, con- some controversial topics. Um, and I Interestingly, guess... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When Interestingly, when we just uh, talked briefly before this, actual podcast, we were talking about how I was asking you whether you had been uh, touching upon controversial areas before COVID-19. And it turned out that you had in in some situations been confronted with the situation that the things that you had, where you had seen the data and felt, comp- you know, sure that you had Uh, one interpretation had been confronted with the fact that many other people would have a completely different uh, interpretation. And and I guess that's uh, something we have in common. My research has also led me into questioning previous to the COVID-19 pandemic whether it was always right was what was in the textbooks or what authorities said. Uh, so I guess that was uh, that's a common denominator for us. Uh, yes. I, yeah, I should I should mention then you can say what your research was in. But a lot of um, I guess my uh, my experience was looking into the research of exercise during pregnancy. And I was really a long distance runner during my first pregnancy. And I would run up to 16 miles a day. And I had I had basically a um, 
uh, it was an anonymous blog where I wrote about uh, running and exercise during pregnancy. And I was very surprised how um, how opposed people were to women exercising and running. And as, certainly that was a lot of miles to run when you're pregnant. But, um, but basically how the public opinion had not caught up with the science in terms of the safety of exercise during pregnancy and, and that the observational data had been pretty consistently showing benefits. Um, and so in my mind, I kind of thought, well, if you, you know, the, the data have been very reassuring. And if women want to exercise, they really should feel safe to do so. And that, I guess, having that experience made me comfortable with, with controversy and sort of writing online and about um, things that you know that the general public might not necessarily agree with immediately, but that if you follow the research closely, um, that, you know, you shouldn't be afraid to ask questions and, and so, you know, question the dogma of the time. And so that's so interesting, <laughs> because I mean, I couldn't have expressed it better. My area was vitamin A supplementation, and also uh, vaccines uh, after that, and their interactions and sex differences and things that people really hadn't questioned uh, or or where there were several dogmas uh, that I've been not out of you know some need to challenge dogmas in fact I'm I th- think of myself as somebody who like to reach consensus with people but but again and again my research has led me to question dogmas and I guess the more you do it and you find out that the dogmas are not actually worth the paper they're written on sometimes, then you get comfortable with, you know, that uh, if you have the data, you're it's justified. You, it's actually necessary and important that you ask questions. Uh, so so I think we, sh- we, we had that in common when COVID hit and Absolutely. when we both found ourselves in, in each our country questioning how authorities were handling uh, this pandemic. Yeah, and and I will I will say having the experience of working as a physician in two countries also has made me constantly second guess myself, double check the literature and the science, and so that I can defend what it is I'm you know recommending to patients, what it is that I'm saying, because Denmark and the U.S. They have a they actually have a, a lot of differences. I mean, um, in terms of medical care and. And I think that's a good segue to talking about the pandemic um, because I was had been in the United States um, five years when the pandemic hit, and I was still reading the Danish newspapers, still really felt on the inside like I was Danish. Maybe and, we should just bring the yeah. Danish audience uh, that may not yeah. know you uh, on yeah. track here because you did your PhD in Denmark. You have a Danish father uh, right so yeah. I don't have a Danish father <laughs> I I have a Danish husband actually <laughs> so, yeah. um, but uh, but I did my PhD after so I did my MD in the United States and my PhD in Denmark um, and so lived in Denmark for seven years um, before moving back to the United States and raised my kids here um, and I think uh, you know that that I really I, I had young kids when the COVID nineteen pandemic hit, and so looking at the way Denmark was approaching children during the pandemic with regards to school reopening and masks, and 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 seeing how it diverged so much from what I was seeing in California, um, 
it it really made it, it made me realize well of course there is no consensus here but but in my experience Danes really um place a childhood and they they place a lot of value on childhood and children are a focus a, a, a large focus of the Danish society and children's well-being um gets more attention in Denmark than it does in the United States and so immediately I could see that children were sort of yeah experiencing um you know uh mitigation that wasn't necessarily for their benefit but in the hopes that it was going to protect an older population and to me you know that, that it was it was a fundamental problem that you know children's needs weren't being considered as much as adult needs were and so we were attempting to have this discussion about you know how many doses any doses what's the appropriate strategy for vaccinating children uh for covid-19 and then you come out with this paper asking you know should it actually just be a disease of childhood based on what we know about the risks of covid-19 to children and i just wonder if you could start out by talking about that and sort of also your involvement in the pandemic yeah i guess i came with these 30 years of experience from africa uh, when when covid hit and and that colored my perspective on the pandemic a lot i've been working on trying to eradicate measles with measles vaccine in africa for many years now and seeing that this is literally virtually well we are getting there but it has taken 30 years with a vaccine that is super efficient against a virus that doesn't mutate and only has one host namely the human uh, being and and still how difficult it is to to eradicate a, a virus with a vaccine and uh, so i was very aware that it would probably be very difficult to ever eradicate human coronavirus with a vaccine because it has we don't have as many good cards on our hands as, as so even with a very efficient vaccine it would still be difficult to eradicate the virus and uh, and so so that I knew right from the beginning I was also acutely aware like everybody else that this was a virus that was particularly uh, harmful for the elderly and for people with uh, multiple diseases so very unlike the measles virus I mean had we had a pandemic with measles virus it would have been devastating uh, but fortunately it was a human coronavirus which was only really dangerous in in my interpretation right from the beginning if you were very old or very vulnerable or if you got a very huge inoculum and that we know also from Africa from many other infectious diseases that the higher the inoculum the higher the virus dose you get the more severe the disease um so so it was dangerous i i'm not going to deny that it was a very dangerous situation where you have a new virus even though it's a pretty harmless virus for most people it the mere fact that everybody was susceptible at the same time also in itself carried the risk of getting very severe disease because of the huge viral inoculum and also because that could overwhelm hospitals even with with quite mild diseases could there would be some who were so severely ill that hospitals could be overwhelmed and that in itself would increase as we saw for instance in Italy the risk of dying from all causes uh, so so i think a lot of these experiences from studying in Africa for some uh, studying infectious diseases and vaccines in Africa for so many years made me think that the reasonable strategy forward was to find a way to co 
exist with human coronaviruses as quickly as possible um, and uh, in a way that at the same time cost as little as possible. And in my view, that was what led to the proposition that we should let we should tame SARS coronavirus too to become a childhood disease, just like the other human coronaviruses, as quickly as possible. And that transition, there were papers also being published at that time that showing that that transition towards being becoming an endemic virus would happen quickest and uh, and in a if, if you know the quicker children became infected and actually developed natural immunity so that was yeah yet another thing that that colored my interpretation that I knew that for I mean it would be highly unlikely that we wouldn't get natural some kind of natural immunity at least towards severe disease from getting infected and we would build some kind of herd immunity eventually and again that would that transition that towards endemicity and to that transition towards taming SARS coronavirus 2 would happen most quickly once the children got infected. That, on top of the fact that we would never, with a disease that is so mild in children, be able to show that the vaccine was actually a better choice for children than being affected, led me to propose that this should be a childhood disease. And that, of course, again, coming back to you, your research, was it was additionally important that they were starting to come these safety signals saying that children could be severely harmed by the vaccines, even though it was only a very small group of children that would completely tip, in my point of view, the benefit-risk ratio of vaccinating. So what you're saying is very controversial in the United States about letting this sort of allowing children to be infected. Um, but we, I think we need to get back to the fact that in Denmark now, the Danish government has said, you know, it was a mistake to vaccinate children. And so what you're saying here is actually really no longer controversial because, you know, the Danish government basically said, well, because the risk to children is so low, the reason that we wanted to vaccinate children is to protect the adults. But all the children got infected anyway. So what we did did not succeed. And so Søren Brostrom said um, that, you know, it was a mistake uh, to vaccinate children. And in the United States, you know, we have another situation where we continue to recommend that children receive boosters. And, in, and now you know, have even made it uh, part of the, the, the childhood the, vaccination, the childhood pro- vaccination which program. Which is incredible That's right. to so me. And would never, I mean, I don't want to swear on anything, but I, I find it so unlikely that that would ever be policy in Denmark because it's simply not in any way justified based on the risk that children run and, and the potential harms and I uh, think, or the, yeah. the, 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 the benefits they have from getting vaccinated versus the potential harms. Right. And I think, you know, part of it has been getting a sense also in the U.S. and, and worldwide of what the actual risk is to children. And we now know from the, the best studies that we have worldwide about the infection fatality rate in children, that it was around three per million in children worldwide. And so, and and I think that puts it into perspective how, how difficult it's been to show that the benefits of the vaccine would out, would potentially outweigh, or that the benefits of the vaccine would potentially outweigh the risks when it takes a while to identify safety signals. I mean, not, you know, we've seen how long it took with with the myocarditis. And I know that you've been seeing some additional safety concerns in children and some side effects after the COVID-19 vaccine. And and just how 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 um, challenging that is to show that for healthy children, that it was, you know, that it was in their 
best interests that they get even one dose of vaccine. And even saying this, it's like I'm scared of it coming out of my mouth because I know how <laughs> controversial what I'm saying is. But, you you know, you you are a vaccine researcher who has researched, you know, vaccines. But listen, Tracy, do, do, don't yeah. you discuss in the U.S. that you would never dream of vaccinating, even if a vaccine, I hope not at least, even if a vaccine was developed against any of the other four human coronaviruses that we coexist with, that wouldn't be in any way cost efficient to introduce uh, i mean we all get a cold once in a while and uh, and it only becomes dangerous when you are very old and suffer from immunosenescence and then you would basically die from whatever virus hits you at the bad moment and and that is the way i mean life ends for many of us and that's a natural end of of life so so how comes that if we would not Nobody would, no pharmaceutical company, I would contemplate making a vaccine for any of the other human coronaviruses. Why is it that you're introducing a vaccine against the fifth of them that we have now tamed to become a mild infection? And both it has mutated to become less severe, and also we have most people now having this herd immunity that makes sure that we don't get a high viral inoculum. So I think the mortality rates that you're quoting are even exaggerated compared with the with the current situation. So when we have something that is basically tamed to become a common cold, why is US then vaccinating against it? And and I wanted to get back to that point because that was those were the estimates from before children had natural immunity. Um, and now, you know, we can't even estimate what the infection fatality rate is exactly. in children. And another issue, of course, in the United States is the question about long COVID. And we've, of course, seen the challenges with the long COVID research. And, and But the best studies that we have on long COVID, especially in young people, show it's incredibly rare. Um, and and now uh, it's, it's in terms of you know mortality rates, I mean it the the study that we have from England, um, there was one that Shemez Ladani was involved in. They didn't have any children in England in their study that died after they'd already been infected the first time. So now we really are talking about a disease that is much more like a cold. Whereas you know certainly someone could rightly say, well, the coronavirus was not like a, a cold in adults who had no natural immunity certainly not and and this you know it and and I don't think either of us want to make that point and I want to and I want to make that clear and you know you talked about before how you wanted to be able to live with the virus as it as it was because we knew that it wasn't going away and I I think the world has come around to accepting that we're not going to achieve zero covid at least I think most people have accepted that and and so but the the one argument that people could could make against what you're saying is that well we did actually we did get a vaccine that at least at least seems to provide temporarily provide some immunity to people who are very high risk so were some mitigation strategies worth it in the beginning. Um, and so that that's, I think, a good topic of debate. And I think it's important to say, yeah, because let's uh, settle that. I think we are both happy that the vaccines became available to the group of people that were highly susceptible to, to severe COVID-19 because there were no trivial mortality rates in the oldest part of the population. And, and, and again, from the also point of view that, I mean, in, in many old people, probably the vaccine would only change the course of death on their death certificate, but not have any profound effect on how many extra months or years of life they had. 
but it also they also came around and helped mitigate the uh, the whole pandemic course in the way that hospitals had better chances of coping with the extra challenge and burden of disease etc so i'm grateful that the vaccines were available uh, but but again i think when we have now where we have the situation where people have been natural in, naturally infected, we also know from almost all other pathogens that the second, third, fourth time you get infected, it will be milder. Mm-hmm. So so it is a completely different epidemiological situation that we are facing now. And then we should also say that when we talk about, you know, which mitigation strategies would we use, of course... Um, something that I've been writing about is the fact that we didn't run randomized trials. And so what could we have done that would have actually worked that would have postponed the time to people being infected? And That's such um, a good question. (laughs) (laughs) And I certainly don't think we have good evidence for masks. And school closures brings me back to the question of viral inoculum, and I'm just going to make a note about that, but well, the mask could potentially bring us back to that too. But um, but we, we really, and, and in terms of lockdowns, I think that people generally agree that if you're able to keep yourself away from all of other humans for an extended period of time, that you're less likely to get, you know, exposed to, to COVID-19, or you're less likely to get exposed to SARS-CoV-2. But um, but then there's the question of the collateral damage, and we've certainly um, see, we see more and more studies showing that, especially for young people, that the harms of the lockdowns um, seem to exceed, you know, the any any potential benefits. And the, there haven't been really good studies that have shown that lockdowns um, in and of themselves have really been successful at protecting people. And that's because, you know, we are a society of people that needs to live. We we need to live together. We depend on each other to get our food and to, you know, um, each other's company and for our happiness. So, um, but you're absolutely right that the, the, there has been this terrible lack of randomized trials to test our interventions. And I'm so sad that we are now, well, what is it, more than three years into the pandemic or since it started, and we don't have good answers to many of the questions that you are raising here. What was actually the effect of school closures, of masks, of vaccines, of lockdowns? And we could have been much wiser if we had implemented these uh, different interventions in a randomized manner. Um, But I, I don't know. I'm constantly asking myself, where are these barriers towards making um, or bringing in some kind of experimental design when we implement health interventions without really knowing their full effect? Um, That's a good question. And I do think people do not appreciate the power of how much like how much knowledge you can gain from a randomized trial and how you can, uh, you know, redu- substantially reduce bias. And um and I think people are also afraid. I think we 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 touched on this earlier today when we were discussing of the, that that one of the arms of the intervention is going to be unethical. But when there is equipoise, um, which there certainly was about an intervention, then the most ethical thing is actually to do the randomized trial. And and in Norway, they were actually planning on doing a randomized trial of school closures. But then they ended up reopening all the schools and they didn't end up doing the trial. And of course, they never closed the schools again. And for the six weeks that they were closed, they say that that was a mistake and that they harmed children unnecessarily. Um, And certainly, you know, compared to the 18 months of school closures that we had in California and some places, yeah, it was some even longer. But um, 
uh, it's 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 certainly we 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 didn't we didn't generate the data to determine that 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 found that it was it actually achieved its intended goal of keeping children safe and um and i and we've seen so many so much evidence of harms now of course um educational harms you know disproportionately impacting um uh disadvantaged youth and it's it's quite a tragedy in the united states but i wanted i had a note that i wanted to get back to your point about the viral inoculum um because i think it's it's so interesting um that that hasn't been more discussed and um uh, whether whether or not you could talk about just a little bit briefly about the research that you've done in other diseases and the concept of the more exposure that you get to a virus, the the more severe your disease is and sort of how you know that and then how that maybe potentially could have explained the high infection fatality rate that we saw in, in um, Italy and in New York where patients were hospitalized, you know, near each other or when people are at home in close contact with many people in their household rather than out at work and at school, for example. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's been seen in Africa for a number of different pathogens that if you're infected outside the home and you're a so-called index case, the one that brings the infection back into the home, then you usually get mild disease. Uh, whereas if you're the person in the household that is exposed to the index case coming home, so for instance, the measles-infected child gets measles-infected in school, brings home the infection, is incubating the infection in its body for for uh, a number of days, maybe up to 14 days before the child, the first index child actually becomes infected, then the siblings sleeping in the same room or in the same house at least who are exposed to that first index case will develop much more severe disease. And uh, in, in Africa, that is uh, brings about a more than fourfold difference in mortality among the index case versus uh, secondary cases from measles, um, simply due to the fact that they are exposed more heavily or intensively to, to virus. And that has been shown in animal studies uh, to lead to more severe disease. It simply shortens the incubation period also. So whereas the index case can maybe be up to 14 days before it develops disease, then the secondary cases get ill much quicker after they have been exposed to the virus, uh, presumably overwhelming the immune system so that you cannot mount a proper immune response before um, before you get really severely ill. So so that has been shown for measles, it's been shown for varicella, it's been shown for pertussis, for a number of pathogens that you have that uh, uh, picture um, or that pattern. Uh, so I think that was a very important factor. And in fact, sometimes we achieved the the opposite of what we wanted with the lockdowns because we brought people home um, with their infections and locked them in together and and uh, we had very early on based on the research done in Africa we also we wrote an op-ed in Denmark writing you know let the singles loose let them out and let them go about doing their normal business they won't they will go home and get ill in their own home infecting nobody else but themselves and right. that would be a way to achieve in a in um, uh, a gradual herd immunity, mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting that no real, I I, I haven't seen a really good study into this with. Um, I've with, seen with one animal COVID-19. study, I think, with SARS coronavirus, okay, too, where okay. it where it also s- supports that that issue, that aspect. That that, if you that get, wasn't yeah. the one where they put the little mask over the hamster, was it? <laughs> 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 no. I, 
I'm not sure. But that, yeah. But yeah. it is, I, it, I think it, it, it was something that I was certainly very interested in in the beginning of the pandemic, mm. and I thought we would have good research on. And then we yeah. were just discussing whether or not, um, you know, the fact that in Sweden, the t- teachers had a lower risk of severe disease than um, than their their peers in other jobs, you know, if that had to potentially do with them having like a small exposure when they were teaching, maybe never even testing positive. Um, you know, I, 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 you know that I, I did research into COVID-19 transmission as well and was published with the CDC and we, we, um, in, in their journal MMWR, and we found a very low transmission rate in schools, mm-hmm. um, really out, out of the, in the fall semester, out of 5,500 students and staff, um, there were only seven cases that we found that were transmitted in the schools, um, and none, none to teachers. And, uh, you know, a lingering question in my mind is, did some of them get it? Did they get antibodies and they just never Maybe. had symptoms yeah. and they never tested That's, positive? I think it's likely. Yeah, I mean because we certainly know that mm. you know a year into the pandemic, about at least a third of the people in the United States had already been infected, and and we know that the asymptomatic infection rate is high, and and um and so I do. I do think that a lot of lines of evidence are sort of pointing towards that, you know, s- school closures, they had many unintended consequences, and they maybe even their effect against COVID-19 was counterproductive. Yes. And if it had been serving more or less like a vaccine to go into school and get a brief exposure and maybe just asymptomatic uh, disease. Yes. But but we we touched upon the fact that there were so few or almost no randomized controls trials being done, even though it had been there are so many ways and we could I mean that's a whole podcast in itself how many different epidemiological study designs that could have been applied to to create these kind of natural experiments where you don't necessarily draw a lot that determines whether you wear a mask or not but whether but it could be different sub-regions in a country having different policies you could introduce interventions in a step-wedged way where you kind of introduce it so gradually that you all the time ensure that you have comparable groups of that receive the intervention and don't receive the intervention and so on. But un- regrettably, we can agree here at least that that wasn't done. And we were left with the observational studies. And I would l- just like to ask you about that, because I know that you have been uh, looking uh, and scrutinizing the observational studies that have been published on some of these health interventions that have been claimed to be highly efficient, like the masks, for instance, and the school closures. And, and, and you have you have been... Well, can you can you you know tip us in on how you how you look at these studies and what are the problems with observational studies and and how to have you seen the 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 way these observational studies have been published and interpreted? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I because I think well, I'll start with talking about vaccine data um, and a, a letter that we had published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine um, with uh, Vinay Prasad and Ram Durasetti. Um So we. Uh, basically, um, we're, we're, we we looked at a study that came out in um, the winter of 2021. I'm sorry, it, it came out in 2021. It came out in December of 2021. So the end of 2021 was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, looking at the mortality rate from COVID-19 after the first booster dose in adults 50 years and older in an Israeli population. And Um, so they reported this adjusted 90% decreased mortality from COVID-19 among the boosted population. But this was a non-randomized study. And 
And so what the authors did not report in the first um, in the first publication was what what were the differences in health? Um, but well, they they tried they tried to adjust for certain you know underlying health conditions, but um, but but they didn't adequately adjust for at least we don't think so in terms of what we what we were able to show in our letter. So they didn't adjust for the differences between the boosted and the unboosted population in the study. And what the authors ended up doing after they published their initial study in December of 2021, when they res- when they responded to a question about their study, they released the raw numbers of of uh, of people in their study who had had and hadn't received the booster of of dying from non-COVID causes. And so basically, I when I saw those numbers, I suddenly realized that we could get the non uh, the, co- the the non-COVID-19 mortality differences between the boosted and unboosted groups as a way so um some people call it a falsification endpoint, but as a way of seeing what the difference in health is between the two populations. And so what we ended up finding was the boosted population, and we'll call them the early versus the late boosted because that's technically what it was, but the early boosted population was ninety-four point had a 94.8% lower non-COVID mortality rate than the non-boosted population. And when you looked at their unadjusted data, the 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 advantage that the boosted had against COVID nineteen mortality was ninety four point six percent, so it was almost exactly the same. Um, I think that that brought some attention to the potential biases and limits of using observational data, and certainly this healthy vaccine bias, which is what it's called, is not limited to Israel. Now, I'm certainly not going to claim that it's always as extreme as a twenty fold difference in in uh, non COVID mortality rates, but but it it points to the fact that you know people who who get vaccinated, and there are different reasons in different countries, but people who tend to get vaccinated earlier or, um, you know, or the ones who get vaccinated versus not vaccinated are different than the people who may get vaccinated later or not at all. Um, And so a randomized study would be able to eliminate that bias. Um, And and so we can talk about mask studies, too. I want to make a note to remind myself that we can talk about other vaccines and what what we can do in the future for evaluating vaccines. But um, but are we also um, I've also been involved in studies that have reanalyzed influential studies of mask mandates um, in children. And so one study was published by the um, CDC in their journal MMWR and um, looked at uh, looked at the change in in COVID nineteen rates in the pediatric population after the school after school started, but only looked at a two week period in the counties that did and didn't have mask mandates, and they found a significant difference between the schools that did and didn't have mask mandates. But we ended up extending the study out to nine weeks, and that difference disappeared. Um, there was no significant difference between the groups, and as a demonstration of if you if you sort of cherry pick your time frame when you look at the data, there are thousands of different ways to slice the data. 
And if you if you just happen to choose the right one, um, you know, then then you can find something significant. And if you move the date, you know, just a week later or two weeks later and it disappears, then you think, well, maybe the effect isn't real of what we found. And that's exactly what we did. And interestingly, MMWR did not publish our reanalysis. Um, not citing any problems with our methodology, but s- basically saying that um, they felt like we needed more room to describe our findings. Well, we went on and had that published in the Journal of Infection, which has an impact factor of 38 the last time I looked. So it's a very good journal. And, um, you know, I mean, we can t- publication bias is, is another um, important topic, but I'll just briefly say that the second study that we just released is, is a reanalysis of a masking study done by Calgar et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine, where they looked at um, a, a subset of school districts around the Boston region and looked at the two districts that ended up maintaining the mask mandates versus, um, uh, I believe it was 70-something districts that ended up dropping the mask mandates in sort of a staggered fashion one week apart from each other. And they ended up, they that the way that they analyzed analyze the data, they ended up finding that the districts that um, dropped the mask mandates had had higher case counts. Well, we were we were able to show that if you expand it to the whole state, the dif- the difference dis- disappears. There's it actually reverses that there were higher cases in the schools that kept the mask mandates versus those that didn't. And um, and if they hadn't used that specific statistical test that they used, which was a Callaway-Centena method of difference and differences, then when just using a simple differences and differences, and this is getting really technical, but then we also didn't find the statistical relationship. So all of this is to say that it's sort of very easy to slice and dice the data to get the finding that you want. Um, and then... Um, and then, the, you know, there's this issue of the journals wanting to publish, having a motive to publish certain findings. And not only did they were they able to say, look at this intervention masking, which we've been arguing for all along. Oh, look, we now have more data that it works. And now we're going to add on to that a conclusion that it masks are also effective, uh, an effective mitigation strategy for uh, systemic racism. Um, And so then the New England Journal publishes this study, um, but certainly won't publish our reanalysis. And one has to ask, you know, well, well, why, why do they want to publish one finding versus versus another? So um, that that is what you have experienced when you have criticized when your research and reanalysis of data and scrutiny of the analytical decisions made when that has made it clear that a different conclusion had been reached or could have been reached, then you cannot publish. You haven't been able, or it has been difficult to publish your I think it's rebuttals. more difficult, yeah. and I will say that the, the preprint server SSRN also rejected that most recent study, saying it was too sensitive of a topic, which is also concerning. Um, But it's I, very concerning, and it's so. I mean, we are scientists. This is so unscientific because you want to have your conclusions out there and uh, your, your interpretation, uh, your data, your raw data, your interpretations out there for scrutiny and for for debate. Uh, it's, yes, I uh, want to get back to that raw data point mm. because I think it's so important that. You know, every time that I'm involved in a study, we release the raw data on GitHub. And I just think 
that that is so crucial that you say when you release your findings and your data that you allow other researchers to go in and reinterpret and, you know, even identify if you've made any mistakes or there's flaws in the way you, you did your analysis. And I think every scientist should really have that approach because, you know, if you have done something that was incorrect, you, you want you want to know that. And I think that that also protects researchers from accusations of having a fraudulent study. And um, I want to get back to the the Clalit, uh, the the Israeli booster paper just for a second and say they have not made their raw data uh, available. Um, and I think that's very concerning that that particular health system has had at least six very influential studies that were observational on the COVID-19 vaccine published in very high impact journals, and none of them have made the raw data available for reanalysis. And um, I think it should be, if we are not doing randomized studies, at the bare minimum, you really need to make your raw data available. And people have said, well, it's private health data. Well, there's certainly ways to anonymize it. So or at people... least present some aggregated data. Right, so, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That, that, yeah, so, um, but... But we should probably move on to talking about. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, maybe. Yeah, let's talk about vaccines in general, and uh, and let's talk about the fact that again here we have uh, situations where there are different interpretations um, of of data, and that in particular we wanted to touch upon the fact that with the vaccination programs, Denmark and U.S. has have taken completely different approaches in designing vaccination programs, which is a clear indication that there is no universal truth out there. If there was unequivocal data showing that this vaccine schedule is the one that works, then obviously both Denmark and 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 US would be using the same schedules. But we have made very different choices, very different interpretation of the available data. And that, um, that lack of... Um, or that presence of different interpretations is in fact also what you're talking about what we talked about in the observational studies that that uh, when a result is not very robust to in any way you turn around the data and, and it could be looked at for different angles and different conclusions have been reached that's a scientifically very interesting and fruitful position to be in because that means that that we can become wiser yes, <laughs> and exactly and this yeah. is also where we are with the vaccination programs I guess in a in a situation where we should discuss why have our two countries chosen such different uh, strategies yes. and uh, and and how do we get to the is there one good strategy that none of the countries or one of the countries ha- has achieved um, so i think yeah we should we should go over and i completely agree with you that there isn't it shows that there is not consensus on this issue there's not international consensus on the issue of exactly which vaccines sh- children should receive. I mean, I will point out that there's a lot of overlap, but when I looked at the first 18 years of life in Denmark, children receive 18 doses and in the United States, it's at least 50. So that's a big difference. And when you look at the differences, which vaccines are different from country to country? Um, So the two big ones that stand out are the yearly influenza vaccine, of course, adds a lot of doses to the U.S. childhood vaccination schedule. And so to make it clear to the listeners, neither so Denmark and, and Sweden and I believe Norway, none of them recommend the influenza vaccine for people less than 65 years old. 
I'm not um, sure about Norway and Sweden, but at least not in Denmark. I know yeah. in Sweden it's also 65 because I, I looked that up recently. And um, and then the COVID-19 vaccine, which we've been discussing. So the U.S. currently recommends that you that children at least have the primary series and a, and a booster dose. And they they did add it to the vaccination schedule. So they I as far as I know, they haven't announced that they want it to be yearly at this point. But I'm suspecting that that's the way that it's it's going. And of course, as we already discussed, this is based on, you know, not having really any sense of what the benefits of the vaccine are going to be. We only really know that they're it's not going to be risk free. <laughs> um, and so um, and then we can talk about so the 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 varicella vaccine um that's different so denmark does not recommend that children get the varicella vaccine and i really want to get into that a little bit and um and then the hep b vaccine is also um a, one that is not recommended um in in denmark and also uh hepatitis a is not recommended in denmark um, and I'm I'm looking for my list here to see if I missed any that are that are rotavirus different. rotavirus thank yeah. you that was and then um, I guess the meningococcal vaccine as well that's that's the final difference yeah so that's yeah. a lot of vaccines that you've chosen to use in the U.S. and that aren't used in Denmark and I guess the the overriding difference in principle or underlying principles is that in Denmark we have until COVID nineteen vaccines only vaccinated against diseases that gave the individual child as, uh, put it at risk of severe disease. So even socioeconomic uh, considerations haven't played a role. For instance, rotavirus vaccine, I'm pretty sure that this the Finnish have shown that it's cost beneficial. You save a lot of, it's not a severe, rotavirus disease is not a severe disease for children, but you save a lot of parents uh, days away from work if they're, them and their their children don't get rotavirus infection. So it's it's cost beneficial. It's not preventing severe disease in the child. The child would survive easily and, and happily with the rotavirus infection, but, but you simply save a lot of money even if you have to pay for the vaccines. But in Denmark, socioeconomic factors have traditionally not been allowed to play a role. So it's only, we only vaccinate against diseases that cause uh, severe disease in the children. Mm, and I think that's so important because I think a lot of people who study medical ethics will will sort of recognize that normally we don't accept that sort of consequentialist um, viewpoint of a medical treatment, you know, that you, um, that you will accept like harming a child to benefit like the economy or the or the or the adults. I mean, I guess we could we could think of you know counter examples um, to that potentially. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a counter example right now um, of a vaccine um, where I I don't think that in gen. I mean, I think that's very it's very good that Denmark prioritizes the 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 well being of the child, um, but. Um, th- yeah, that's 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 a very interesting. It's an interesting point. So, does Finland we, recommend giving the rotavirus vaccine? Uh, uh, Finland has an approach which is more like the U.S. approach, where they okay. also use the yearly uh, influenza vaccine uh, in children, and that's also oh, the and they also introduced it. I have to say, the last two years we've used it in Denmark, and uh, probably also this coming autumn. And but that has been done entirely with the justification that this is not for the child; this is to prevent disease in. Uh, the older population. So it's we are devi- starting to deviate from that strategy of only vaccinating the children against severe disease.
pieces mm-hmm. um, in in Denmark too. But uh, but I also guess it's uh, Denmark was uh, affected by the pandemics episode in 2009 with the swine flu influenza vaccine that was used uh, in many countries uh, quite universally in the fear of, of a new pandemic with swine flu. Uh, and Finland, Norway and Sweden also introduced it to children. But Denmark took a strategy based on these principles of only vaccinating children, at, uh, vulnerable children who had comorbidities. And it... Um, And we saw that there was this clustering of uh, narcolepsia cases in the other Nordic countries, uh, which was associated with the pandemic vaccine, but which didn't occur in in Denmark that didn't use the the vaccine. So I think that has, uh, I mean, consolidated, well, at least up to some extent, the idea that we don't use vaccines, that they come with a potential risk of harm. And that risk shouldn't be run unless there's a very good reason for it. Yes. And I think we need to review for the listeners who might not know about the pandemics vaccine um, that it was used for, like you said, the, the swine flu. I think it was 2008, 2009, yeah. 2008, 2009. And, um, and that there was this um, risk of narcolepsy that was actually from the adjuvant. It, yeah. it ended up being found out. So that's not necessarily going to be a risk for influenza vaccines moving forward. I was uh, relieved to learn. But, um, you know, you don't know when some risk like that is going to occur. Exactly. And, yes, we couldn't have um, predicted the myocarditis risk that you'd then uh, uncover from the COVID-19 vaccines. Right. And which is, I mean, in a situation where you have a mild disease like COVID-19 is as, as something, a risk that you don't want to run because it it completely tips the benefit risk ratios right. towards harm. And uh, and so, but, but Finland and Norway and Sweden now, like they lived with that experience of, oh my gosh, we've given this many, I don't know how many children it ended up being that, that ended up getting narcolepsy, Several but it was hundreds yeah. of children. With a severe is, disease. It is a very severe disease. Mm. And the the infection fatality rate, you know, from influenza is in in in, in children in, in Scandinavia, the last time I looked is, you know, it's one to three, two to four per per million. So it's it's very it's it is it is very low and certainly high risk children I think could be targeted, you know, if Absolutely. they feel yeah. you know, for, 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 for vaccines. And so I that's the strategy that Denmark took that they said the pandemic's vaccine will be available for high risk um, children. Um, but but I, I do think that that's an important point that we need to remember that, you know, it also took a while to detect that safety signal and, and, and or for it to be acknowledged, even though apparently it was it was it, it, you could see it early on, and Glasgow Smith Klein maybe didn't acknowledge that they were seeing it, which is also a scary thing. But 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 I think that that has definitely made, from what I've understood, it it made uh, Norway and and Sweden and Finland they they held back more. They they didn't end up uh, recommending the COVID nineteen vaccine to five for eleven year olds who are not high risk. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. But. We are coming to an end, which is regrettable yeah. because we could have continued for a very long time. But we we have to say, I think this is uh, the first in a series of uh, talks that you and I will do also because when you tweeted about this, it was you asked people if they had questions to us. And I think we have only touched upon very few of the many questions that people post. And I, I think there is a, I feel that there is a request for honest and transparent conversations around vaccines, um, and uh, and people don't feel they get it from the health authorities right now. And I think that is what you and I can actually provide, Tracy. I'm so happy we've started this conversation and that we'll be continuing it because I think we come from the same 
place. We want to have good data. We want to have honesty and transparency around vaccines. And we both strongly believe that this is, in the end, how we create trust uh, and become trustworthy. Absolutely. No, this was such a good conversation. I just I want to say, you know, we had plans to talk about the DTP vaccine <laughs> and and Hep B um, and, you know, the, the MMR data for and, and, autism and, 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 and MMR and autism and the varicella vaccine. So <laughs> we just need to have a you know, we need to get together again soon and discuss that. Um, but this was just a, basically an introduction to an ongoing discussion we're going to be having. So. Um, thanks so much for joining me, Christine. Thanks so much pleasure. for coming here, Tracy. And uh, yeah, we'll leave it here and just to say to, to be continued.